Welcome to Reconceive with Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield. Over the next hour, Deborah, Tracy, and their guests will help you understand therapist burnout and how to feel better now. Listen close to bring vitality back to your practice. Now, here are Deborah and Tracy. Welcome to Reconceive. I'm Deborah. And I'm Tracy. And we are here today to talk about in the woods. Going into the woods. Nobody wants to do it, but uh, it's important work. It must be done. Must be done. Yeah. So we are taking a little bit of a different approach today as we talk about going into the woods. Um, So our episodes up until now in this series have been really, really focused on therapist self-care and on on practitioner self-care in general. And it's not that we're really changing the subject, but then again, we kind of are, right? We are. So episode 10, our 10th episode, we decided to start doing Mm co-therapy. So now Deborah and I work together. We still have our individual practice, but we work together in order to help individuals, families, couples, and groups. Right. And we've noticed that doing co-therapy, where each of us, Deborah and I, are both in the same room with the client, feels safer, feels easier, feels more comprehensive. Mm -hmm. So it provides us with a, a way to practice that avoids a lot of the burnout that therapists often feel. Very true. And now that we've discovered that for ourselves, we want to move forward and talk less about maybe therapist burnout and self-care and start moving into talking about what co-therapy feels like for us. Well said. And I think the co-therapy is also providing more opportunities for us to learn from each other, which is inspiring a whole raft of new conversations. I love that. Yeah, it is inspiring, you know, to be in a room with another therapist working on a client's behalf. Mm-hmm. It just feels really good and important. It does. Um, so today's episode was inspired by a co-therapy session. And this was actually your idea. Um, you talked about... After we saw a client not too long ago, you said, it's important for us to go into the woods. Right. We were working together with a client, and I could feel that this client was moving into a state of defense. Mm -hmm. They were having a limbic response. And my first reaction after studying polyvagal theory was, oh, we need to move her into a state of safety. Mm -hmm. But the client actually saw my reaction and she said, oh, you know, this is important. She said, it's okay. It's okay. It's important. Yeah. 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 She was mad. She was feeling her anger. And she somehow knew that she needed to feel it. Yes. And it reminded me of something I read by, I think Peter Levine Levine says, you have to feel in order to heal. Mm -hmm. And it it made me reevaluate because once I started studying polyvagal theory and I realized that the transformative power of feeling safe, yes, that's very important. So I was trying to make people feel safe within each therapy session, which I've always done. But her reaction to that session made me realize that in order to get the corrections that we're trying to achieve, the client really has to move in to the state of defense that's associated with whatever trauma we're working with. Right. And I think um, that's become the, the, the feel it in order to heal it is almost a cliche in my world. Um, and my feeling today about that is there's a lot more meaning there 
than what meets the eye. And many people probably have not thought about what it really means um, to feel it in order to heal it. So we're going to go into some detail with that today. And that's going to help us further explicate why it works so well to have a psychologist and a body therapist, a neuromuscular therapist, a movement specialist working together. So um, without further ado, here are the categories that I think we need to go through today. Into the woods means a number of things. Um, For us, it means listening for the emotion of the client and also of our own emotion. It, It means listening to the body. So listening to all of the body sensations associated with with the session and what's going on. It means listening to the complexity of the story, Um, not just the spoken word, but the tone and the choice of word, not just the content of the story, but the process of telling it and the, the movement that the person puts with the story. And then feeling for the connection And we're going to talk a lot about that. We've already talked a lot about connection and how our brains and nervous systems are wired for it and how important it is to the therapeutic relationship and and to our well-being in general. So let's let's go there. Let's go into into the woods. Sounds good. (laughs) Into the connection. So um, thinking about that sweet spot, can you remember the last time you were in a uh, some kind of helping situation in a therapy session or other other kind kind of consultation where you you felt the sweet spot you knew you were in the zone you could feel yourself deeply connected to the person in front of you and also deeply connected to your own source of energy wisdom you're on it you're very concentrated you know what to do you know where you're going you're listening deeply and you're following And yet you're also able to facilitate and lead all at once. I think when you hit that sweet spot, you are allowing your client to go into the woods and yourself to go into the woods. Do you get that feeling? Yes, I love that flow state. So it happens more easily and feels safer when I'm working together with you One of the things I realized during our break from doing these podcasts was I had always felt like when a client comes in, most of my clients, probably yours as well, come in in a state of defense. Mm -hmm. Even if they have a pleasant affect, you can feel their anxiety. And I always thought in the past that I was feeling my emotional response to their anxiety. But since we've been studying mirroring systems, I realized now that what I'm feeling in large part is simply their emotional state. Mm-hmm. And we talked once in one of the podcasts about how other people's cortisol actually travels through the air and it is absorbed by other people. Mm-hmm. So if you think about it in that physical sense, the client's still releasing cortisol, but now instead of just me soaking it up, it's you and me soaking it up. So I only get half as much. (laughs) We're splitting it. We're splitting it. So that's uh, a clearly helpful thing. Maybe that's why it's not so tiring. That's one of the reasons. I mean, I'm sure there are many reasons, but that's absolutely one of the most tangible. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that I notice, and I've I've said this to other people, is that working with you with a client is like having a sliding glass door like you might see at a grocery store that is allowed to open far enough and, and for long enough that we can go right in with the intervention and make the connection. And so sometimes it requires a third party to help hold that door open which is what I think you're doing where you're clearing a physiological path for a connection to be made and for the, the intervention like EMDR to work better. 
I think that's true. And in shamanic work, they describe that as holding space. Uh-huh. And, you know, my my expertise is largely based in proprioceptive deep tin and reflex techniques. So, you know, Stephen Porges, the creator of polyvagal theory, talks about how people get stuck mm-hmm. in a state of defense, fight, flight, or freeze. Mm-hmm. Well, in PDTR, they talk a lot about how sensory receptors after trauma commonly get stuck in a heightened state of electrical activity. Mm. So even after the structure has healed, the sensory receptors, especially nociceptors, which is noxious stimulus, Mm -hmm. stimuli, those uh, stay in a heightened state of electrical activity. So they're continually sending a message to your brain saying, I'm not safe. This is noxious Mm -hmm. stimuli that's constantly, and the more you get of those sensory receptors stuck in a state of that uh, heightened electrical activity, your your brain is constantly getting this noxious stimuli. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons people get stuck in a state of defense. That makes sense. So stuck in a state of defense might be one of those states that you can feel when you're sitting with your client and you don't have access to them. It's like, I can see you. You're right there. I hear you talking. I hear you talking about emotion, but I don't really have access to you. And so then, at least for me, what happens is I begin to kind of go into a a very foggy state or or a tranced out state not not in a good way just sometimes the trance feels good right this doesn't feel good right we were just we were just talking about that before the uh, podcast if somebody's stuck in a state of freeze which is a state of shutting down then their transmission of emotions feels void feels void okay so that may be why I'm not I'm not getting the signal coming back to me that I'm wanting or that I'm waiting for. I think that's right. So if if I when I work, I remove or reduce or correct these sensory receptors that send this constant flow of no susception to the client's brain. Once you reduce those, the client has more flexibility they may still be in a state of defense, mm. but they have the ability to move from freeze into flight or fight. Mm-hmm. And once that movement starts, you know, Anat Banyal says movement is the language of the brain. Yes. You really have to have movement through those biobehavioral states in order to go into the woods and out of the woods and back into the woods. And so you're moving them through states of safety and state, states of defense. Then we as therapists start feeling what's happening. And then we can work with it. Right. Then we can work with it. Ooh, this is so big. This makes so much sense. So when your client is hyper aroused in session and anxious, you can feel that. You can work with that. You can help them tone it down just enough that you can make a, a connection. But if they are, if they're in a state of freeze, shut down, no movement is taking place, you're shut out of that. Right. It's. I think it's much harder to make progress. But when they're in a state of fight flight, you and I have both felt this frenzy type of feeling, that type of frenzy where their emotions are kind of, I don't know the right word for it, kind of knocking you around. Mm -hmm. That's hard on a therapist. Mm -hmm. Physically. Physically and emotionally, Mm -hmm. it can be very exhausting. I think it's Mm -hmm. one of the main causes of burnout. Mm -hmm. But when you and I work together, if I start to feel that, I look at you Mm -hmm. You smile, and it helps me 
regulate my nervous system, I know that type of work is much healthier for me. Yeah. Okay. So this is big. And I don't know, listeners, if you can feel how big this is, that to, to, um, to know that you don't need to um, try to escape or prevent or avoid fight states or flight states. There's a way to work with them. And in fact, you need them. They're part of the woods. Um, and one way that we have been learning to work with them um, and to really capitalize on them is working together. So let's talk for a second about listening for the emotion, because the emotion is part of where where we meet the woods. Maybe it's the edge of the woods. Um, and everybody who's been through any kind of counselor training um, knows about listening for the emotion. And usually um, you're listening for words, but there are other ways to listen for emotion as well. Um, and sometimes you're not going to get the word. In fact, quite often you're not going to get the word, but you're going to have to feel for that anyway. You probably know what I'm talking about. There's a way in which we're we're always listening for the emotion. And in fact, I would argue that your attention is probably more focused when you can begin to hear the emotion. Then your mirroring system kicks in and you're going to be able to more easily connect with the what that's being said. Like, have you ever noticed working with someone who's talking about their situation, but they they are not expressing emotion about it. That's always kind of a, um, it's a dislocating experience for the practitioner because you can tell there's something that's happened that should be eliciting emotion and I'm not hearing it. So that can feel really strange. But if we're listening for the emotion, then we're going to be able to hear between the lines of what's being said and we're going to be able to ask about it, go for it. It's really where the good stuff is. And and that may seem obvious to most of you, but it's not obvious to everyone. Well, it wasn't obvious to me until very recently when I realized, and even though I've been studying this stuff and, you know, it's going into my brain Mm -hmm. until it feels like it's integrated into my body, it doesn't make as much sense. Mm -hmm. But once I realized, oh, I'm feeling their emotions too, Mm -hmm. then I'm like, what am I feeling? When I work with this person, what do I feel emotionally? Uh What do I feel physically? Because I know, at least in part, what I'm feeling is coming from the client that I'm working with. So if I feel incompetent, there's a pretty good chance they feel incompetent. I believe that's true. Yeah. Okay. So we'll come back to that in a minute. But the next piece of this, listening to the body, there's an awful lot to say about that. And I I have questions for you, Tracy, about listening to the body. Because in, in my training, you know, I got a thimble full of that because like I've said before, the body was considered to be off limits. We were working with the mind. <laughs> there was such a split there. Right. But in reality, it's an integrated system. There's absolutely no split or divide between mind and body. When you move, every cell in your body is a part of that movement. Right. And emotions are movement. Emotions are movement. How so? Well, you can feel them moving through your body. I mean, we talked with Amy Banks about social pain overlap theory. People, I think, are gaining a better understanding that physical pain and emotional pain are the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody hurts you emotionally, it can feel as if they've punched you in the stomach. Yes. 
Yes, I was just reading Eisenberger this morning, an article by Eisenberger and Lieberman, who have done a lot in social pain overlap theory. And it gave me a little bit more understanding of it because what they were explaining was that the area of the brain that is activated when one is experiencing a physical pain, said in air quotes, um, is is the same area. It shares the same activation area with, um, you know, what what is happening when we're being excluded socially. And so they've looked at a lot of this social exclusion research. And so how feeling left out can actually be triggering the same or, or lighting up the same brain areas um, as when there's a physical pain. Right. Imaging of the brain really confirms that physical and emotional pain are the same thing. And I was once again rereading Awareness Through Movement by Feldenkrais the other day, and he talks about how pain makes people have less self-worth. Wow. So that's physical or emotional pain makes you, the person who's having it, feel less worthy. So in a way, it doesn't it doesn't even matter where that pain is coming from. If it's coming from, I, I bumped into the couch or I'm being excluded or I'm being shut out of my relationship. Right, right. Pain, pain triggers that same loss of feelings of worth. Yeah. So we experience our emotions viscerally. And I tell my clients, the only reason we know we have an emotion is that there's a body sensation happening. But it's easy to get disconnected from that. It's easy because we're trained to be disconnected. Like you talked about your training to become a psychologist, you focused on thinking. The mind. The mind. (laughs) And that's why, you know, I'm not saying cognitive therapy is a a bad thing. It's a very important thing. But you can't exclude those visceral feelings that we've been, in a way, throughout our whole lives trained to ignore. Mm -hmm. Ignore those. Just push through. Push through. Mm -hmm. Be tough. Be independent. Right. Mind over matter. Yeah, it's a bad strategy. It's a bad strategy, but it it's a really helpful and healing strategy when we start to wake up to, oh, that's a sensation in my body that is a signal that I'm emoting. I told, so so I had a, a big surgery several several years ago, and my surgeon came into my room and asked me if I was feeling any nausea. And I said, no, but I feel very, very guilty. (laughs) I feel like a terrible person. (laughs) And then I realized that is my experience of nausea. I feel it as guilt first. Oh. Yeah. And that made you more self-aware. It actually gave you a a bigger, more complete self-image. Right. It's a way, recognizing these emotions are a way to create a better map of you within your brain. Ah, yes. So we do experience our emotions viscerally. um, And this connection, this quote unquote mind body connection um, manifests in all sorts of very specific ways in this integrated system, hormonal changes, nervous system changes, um, other kinds of changes, muscular changes. You've mentioned the constriction of muscles. Right, right. You know, chronically contracted muscles are part of a biological configuration of anxiety. Mm -hmm. They limit your ability to move. They reduce tissue perfusion. I believe they reduce the frequencies that reach those parts of your body and and also limits your ability to emit those frequencies or vibrations from those parts of your body. Yeah. 
that would be a somatic marker, right? Right. Talk about somatic markers of emotion. Right, right. People need to listen to what their body is telling them. As Stephen Poor just says, seeking safety is a neural exercise. Mm-hmm. So if your body is telling you you feel unsafe, if you can, you should take action on that information. Mm-hmm. And we've been trained to ignore it. Yes, we have. Yeah. Therapists and clients alike. Okay, so we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about listening to the body, listening to the complexity of the client's story and experience and and feeling for the connection, knowing that it's safe to do that. We'll be back shortly. Burnout takes a toll on your effectiveness with clients, patients, and students, even your kids. Reconceive brings help for all the gifted helpers out there who want to make a difference, but first need to feel better, more awake, and more creative. Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield show you a whole new way to think about mental health and the body, offering insight and inspiration to help bring back the vibrancy and joy to your work in the world. If you teach, do therapy, or provide any kind of human service, it's time to reconceive. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You're listening to Reconceive with Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield. Check out all our other episodes on demand. Now back to Reconceive. Welcome back to Reconceive. We're talking about going into the woods with our clients, patients, and trusting that it is safe and that it is necessary and important to go into the woods. And what does that mean to you, Tracy? Well, it means that since I've learned polyvagal theory, I've been trying to make every session, you know, have the client be in the social engagement system. Relaxed. Relaxed, calm, joyful. But after we worked with that client we spoke about in the first half, I realized that doesn't work. I mean, it's a good idea to make them feel safe when they come in and for sure make sure you try to end the session with them in a biobehavioral state of safety. But during the session, you really have to take them to the place, to the feeling where the trauma is accessible mm-hmm. to the therapist and to the therapy. You told me one time that you felt like what I do is a session of titration. Yeah, yeah. So you go, you're good at going, taking people into the woods because... You know, with all of your training and background, the EMDR makes it easier. But when you talk to people, as you start to take them into the woods, you say things like, is there an emotion that goes with that? And is there a color that goes with that? And where do you feel that in your body? So you take this, in my opinion, you take this traumatic experience and you know, Deborah's an artist. She she paints and does music. But every time she asks a question like that, it's like she's taking this trauma and making it more diffuse, like painting it out on a canvas mm. so the client feels safer as they go into the woods because they're not just holding this big clump of trauma. They're holding this this beautiful painting that yeah it's a representation of a hard experience within their life but making it more diffuse makes it easier for them to re-experience it and process it and synthesize it it's it's a beautiful thing to watch yeah so that helps me a lot um, to understand why it's okay to go into the woods. We wouldn't want to rush anyone in there. We wouldn't want to grab them and yank them into the woods. We want to go 
in a way that is respectful and that that takes that blob and spreads it out so that you can see that there's sunlight on it and it doesn't have to be the scary, awful thing that we thought it was. It's actually safe. Right. And after I just described it, I realized that's a wearing. Um, you know, instead of being aware of this clump of trauma or dysfunction, uh-huh. We're now becoming more aware of, oh, I feel it here in my body. Oh, when I think about it, it has this color in my mind. So all of these things are actually oh, expanding your awareing abilities. Mm-hmm. And that is titration. Yeah. And that reminds me of the complexity of the picture. So we're listening for the complexity. And you've really helped me a lot with this. One time we were working with someone and you you said, did you notice how when he was talking about his father's death, he gestured with his hand toward his heart? Did you notice that? And I had not been paying attention to it, but then all of a sudden I, I remembered and then I started to notice when people take their hand and put it here or or wipe their eyes or scratch their head or, and you have said that all of those things are important. None of it is random. Right. I discovered this when I had an intake form. I still use the same intake form. It's got a drawing of a human body and my client had circled neck pain with a circle that was very small. But then when I interviewed her about her neck pain, she made this waving motion over her neck. And I noticed that that didn't match the picture that she had drawn. And I started to realize, I think there are two conversations going on. One with the client's conscious mind and one with the client's unconscious mind. Her conscious mind knew that her pain was distributed throughout the whole one side of her neck and shoulder. But her unconscious mind drew a small circle on the chart. And sure enough, that small circle was where the sensory receptor dysfunction was located. So her unconscious mind led me directly to the place that needed attention. Wow. And then I think you've mentioned other things like auditory and visual issues It comes up all the time, and it turns out that the things clients say, the things that seem the most random, and when I started my practice 12 years ago, these were the things I thought, well, why are you telling me this? And I wish you would stop talking so I could get to work. (laughs) But after years of practicing, I realized that what they're telling me, no matter how random it seems, and the more random normally the more important it is that those are the things I focus on. So I was working with a client the other day and he was coming into me for pain, but I worked with him for a while and I I knew there was more to do, but I said, are you still having pain? And he said, no, I don't have any pain. And I said, is there anything going on that you've noticed that seems weird? And he said, yeah, anytime somebody gets in my car, they turn up my radio. So I turned up my meditation music, and sure enough, he had global inhibition whenever the music was above a very low level. So then I did, I believe, a cranial cranial nerve 8 correction, and then he was able to hear louder music without it weakening his whole body. Mm -hmm. And in my world, weakness equals pain. Mm -hmm. So it would actually, louder music moved him into a state of freeze. I corrected the cranial nerve dysfunction and got rid of that kind of uh, hair trigger response to loud noises. Right. So, so there's really no information that's meaningless or that's, that's trash. Some is more important than others. But we can pay attention to these these signals that people give us, these little details that could lead us into um, the woods. 
Yeah, yeah. And I noticed, Deborah, that you do the same thing. I think maybe more now that you've been working with me, but I also think that we could in the future help other therapists recognize the things that seem random or not related to why the client came in Mm -hmm. because they always are related to what's going on in the session. That's fascinating. So another issue here with the complexity and, and how we need to listen to the complexity involves medications. And I've been thinking an awful lot about medications because I see a lot of people who have a a psychiatrist who is working with them as well, who will um, prescribe maybe a number of things. Most uh, importantly for for me, when they prescribe anti-anxiety medication, and that makes my work harder. And I've been looking into kind of why Why is that? It's sort of commonly known that anxiety medications interfere with the MDR. But, you know, our conversation about the woods has made me also realize anxiety meds keep us out of the woods, potentially. They do. I I listen to, yeah, this this into the woods idea is helping me figure things out much more completely. I listened to a Robert Sapolsky lecture a long time ago. He talks about how benzodiazepine works in order to reduce anxiety. Mm -hmm. So we have a bi-directional nervous system. Most of the things I work on are afferentation problems. Afferentation meaning what? Information going to the brain. Mm. From parts of the body? From the feelings that come from the body, sensory receptors, or yeah, we talked earlier about chronically contracted muscles. Okay. So if you have chronically contracted muscles and you take benzo in, those chronically contracted muscles send a message to your brain of anxiety. Okay. So benzos work by reducing chronic muscle contraction. Oh. And then your brain gets this message that it is safer so it can calm down. Uh But I don't think it brings people out of their state of defense. It just makes them hard. It makes it harder for them to feel the information that's coming from their body. So they have less, less access to the feelings that come from states of defense. And another thing that is being shown in clinical studies is that benzodiazepines also seem to interfere with memory recall, with the details of it. Oh, yeah. So what if, you know, part of what we're saying here is you need to be able to feel it at least to some degree in order to recall or to to load the EMDR train or to to get enough detail in your short-term working memory to process the information. Yeah, so I was talking about the muscular aspect of it, but I'm sure it, it is multidimensional. You know, you're talking about the a reduced ability to actually bring those memories to the surface. Yes a reduced ability to feel what your body is feeling. Mm-hmm. So it it really does make the work that we're trying to do much more challenging and even potentially impossible. Impossible, yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking about a couple of people we're working with right now who are on a lot of medications and how EMDR won't won't produce any movement under those circumstances. And I don't know, what do you see in terms of pain relief under those circumstances? Well, it's harder to track problems. It's harder to track dysfunction. And it's it's harder to feel what they're feeling. It's harder for them to communicate to me or us what they're Mm -hmm. feeling. 
it, it kind of uh, throws a wet blanket over the whole thing. <laughs> you know, that may be why in the past, I'm thinking about when I was an intern and I was working with um, people in the Dallas public schools and I was, I was doing family therapy at night in the school-based clinic. And I had a number of parents coming in who were on lots of medication and they were very sedated thinking of one person in particular who I just could not sit in the room with her without just almost falling asleep. It was torture. Now I wasn't medicated. She was medicated. I was trying to get information from her that would help me help her help her child, but it was torture. It was like pulling teeth. And it was also like, this is, I don't even know if I can make it five more minutes in here. Well, that's a great example of our mirroring systems. You were feeling her. Yeah. She was shut down and she was shutting you down. Yeah. Wow. That makes sense. And so this is part of what makes me want to say to the field of psychiatry, (laughs) you guys, please help us out, right? Because... Sometimes the medication is helpful. Certain kinds of medication are helpful. Certain kinds are really in the way of this longer-term solution where we need to go to the woods. Right. I'm not sure they will help us out because I know that, you know, pharmaceuticals enhance a lot of healthcare practitioners' practices. Uh, but I also know that there are very few studies about drug-drug interactions. The studies are about how does this drug interact with the body? How does this drug? But they're not studying how those two drugs taken together. But they may be stopping the production of acetylcholine or dopamine, feel-good chemicals, memory chemicals within the brain. We just don't know. We just don't know. And in the meantime, we're just kind of under a wet blanket and not much can happen. Right. So there's a lot to say here. There's a lot to say about body, mind, uh, mind, body, and how and why it's so important to listen for the complexity of um, the body and its interaction with our, our voice and the words that we select the words our clients select. Um, But there's also this listening for connection. And this is a little bit harder to talk about, but it's, it's kind of a feeling for connection thing. When do you feel disconnected from your client, your patient? When do you feel connected to them? Um, It's much easier to help someone when you feel a connection. And when you feel disconnected from them, it's kind of like you're working remotely with, you know, a very long stick or something. It's very hard to, I don't know, touch the pain. It is. And a good example of that is, you know, one of the things I've changed about my practice as we talked about therapist burnout is I had a client come in today, first time client, um, and she wanted to pay me in advance. And I said, no, I'd like you to wait because In the past, I've had clients who I could not connect with. And if that happens and I feel like there's no way forward, I just tell that client that this isn't working. I'm not going to charge you, but I think you need to look for help somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And she understood. She said, you know, that's she thought that was very kind. So our session went very well and she paid me at the end. But I think it's important for therapists to take care of themselves and recognize that they can't help everybody that walks through the door. Do you have any guesses about how this connection piece fits with the the physiological piece? Like, is it is it something going on physiologically, emotionally, that's keeping us from being able to connect relationally? Sometimes it is physiological. So my frequency may not 
feel like a good frequency for them to interact with. Mm-hmm. You know, when you meet somebody, sometimes you feel connected, sometimes you feel repelled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've I've likened our work to um, having a an automatic glass door like at the grocery store that slides open and closed. And the feeling of working with you is that I have more of a chance to make a connection and I'm pretty good at making connection, but even with somebody who doesn't want to connect with me, I have a better chance because it feels like you help that sliding glass door open. You help it stay open long enough for me to come inside with a relational connection piece, something that will help me join with that person. Yeah, since we've been working together, I've never had the experience of having to tell a client, you know, this is not working. Mm. So I, I believe co-therapy really helps that door slide open and stay open. Mm-hmm. And in shamanic terms, they would probably call that holding space for one another. Mm -hmm. So it makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference. And I think that it gives us access to this thing called the mind-body feedback loop that I've seen. I've seen that term in literature. Um, I'm not, I'm not aware of that term, but I I think it's just referring to the bi-directional quality of our nervous system. We receive information, our brains process it, and then we have output. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the reasons Michael Merzenich, Dr. Merzenich, talks about how TV is so detrimental to our brains is because we receive input, our brains process it, but we never complete that loop. We never have output. So engaging in reality is much healthier for your brain than watching a TV show. Or being on the phone, being on our smartphones. Or being on a phone or even being sedentary. You're not, movement forms our brains. As Anat Banyel says, movement is the language of the brain. Mm -hmm. So if your butt's sitting in a chair all day, Mm -hmm. then your brain is being downgraded over and over every second. And we're never completing a feedback loop. Right, right. Sedentary. So you're sitting and you're watching TV. Yeah, you feel these emotions but yeah it's 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 passive. empty it's passive yeah so i wonder if that's part of what's going on with increased depression around um you know excessive phone use computer screen time television time those things plus this feeling of if it works if it if if it ain't broke don't fix it You know, if you go for a walk every day, if you want to upgrade your brain, even though you've walked around the same neighborhood for 20 years, if you look for something new or something different on that walk every day, once you find that new thing, your brain will release acetylcholine and dopamine. You'll feel better. Your brain will be upgraded. You'll get new neural pathways, potentially neurogenesis Mm -hmm. but people don't do that because they don't see this insidious degradation of their brains right and you know if they look at a brain and and it has low levels of acetylcholine they can predict quite accurately that in a decade or so this person will have dementia or parkinson's you need to upgrade your brains Mm -hmm. yeah which is why you suggested that when we're out walking or whatever, we're not having our earbuds in. We're not listening to music. We're listening to the sounds of the outdoors. Right. You're connected to your environment and you don't want to disrupt that feedback loop. That is so in line with trusting the woods. 
It is. It, it is, is safe. It is safe to go into the woods. Yeah, yeah. I was just talking with a group of psychologists and, you know, I've got a lot of mental health people in my life. And I'm always surprised at how easy it is for those of us in the industry to forget that the woods are safe. In fact, maybe some of us were never trained to trust the woods. Maybe we didn't learn about the value of experiencing emotion. But just yesterday, my conversation with these psychologists was so um, it was so interesting to me because we were talking about something upsetting, and every one of them wanted to explain why we shouldn't be upset to um, offer a solution that would get us unupset or to cover it up with a distraction so that we would just would not stay in the upset. And so I was just really taken with that. And I was thinking about our conversation coming up and how, yeah, even if you think you know that we've got to go into the woods and we've got to feel it to heal it, you might not realize all the many ways in which we don't pay attention to it. Right. And if you listen to Stephen Porges talk, he talks about how mental health care is moving toward treating the body's response to trauma. Mm -hmm. So you have to feel these things in order to be able to treat them. You have to treat the body's response. Yeah. So you have to stay in the woods yeah. until you find some wildflowers, <laughs> you know. They're there. They're there. You can find them. You can find them. It's going to be okay. It's okay to feel. Yeah. And so just mentioning again the, the idea of medicating emotions and trying not to feel them, um, I, I want to say out loud again that um, I think I think we need to help our physician friends understand that it is safe for people to feel their feelings um, and that we can, we can help them a lot more easily if they can feel. So we'll be back in later episodes to talk more about the very specific nature of body mind. Um, I know you probably have a lot of questions about the things that we brought up today. Please email us um, at reconceiverecovery at gmail.com um, with your questions, your stories, um, your answers, your, your thoughts. And we will see you soon. See you soon. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Reconceive. We hope you've learned something today you can use to reconnect and feel better. Tune in next week for more on transforming practice. Until then, have a great week.